ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, hi there and happy Monday. I'm Selena Green with you for The Country Hour today and all this week. Coming up, we'll take a look at digital technology and how it's helping farmers, but also some of the challenges that exist and whether it's been living up to what's been promised. And certain soils are strongly resistant to wetting or water infiltration. So how can that be overcome? I think what we're confirming across these trials is that we actually need to do something pretty destructive in most cases to actually really eliminate that constraint. More on that to come in this next half an hour. But first today, do you feel like you're being inundated with demands from different markets, especially you're someone who exports to Europe, for proof that you're operating sustainably? Well, there's a mass of data and technology around to help farmers deliver on those requirements, but what's actually working right now? Well, David Clawton filed this report with Emily Doak and Michael Condon from the Digital Agri-Food Summit, which has just wrapped up in Wagga Wagga. The roadway to innovation in in our agri-food sector is still littered with the corpses of failed solutions or at least solutions set up for inappropriate reasons or inappropriate um, situations. That's Professor David Lamb from the Food Agility Cooperative Research Centre. He says ag tech companies failed to meet the promises they were making a few years ago and that's left a few people disillusioned with the vision of a high-tech farm. Five years ago, we had an investor-fueled tech bubble, you know, almost ready to pop there. You know, there was products and solutions coming out of the woodwork for producers and value chain actors. What we're now seeing is we're now into that sort of that plateau there where we've now got good, solid, deliberate innovation going around good, reliable products and services. Professor Lamb thinks that genuinely useful technology is now rising to the surface and that companies are being pushed to change to retain access to markets. Because of the challenges thrown up by, you know, the requirements to access markets through assurance, you know, traceability, uh, credentials around land management, you name it, then these stable technologies and solutions are now taking a good solid hold in the marketplace. A big problem has been the limited access to fast internet in regional areas in Australia, which makes it impossible sometimes to use robots that drive themselves or data gathering systems that process and share vast amounts of information. But David Lamb says that's changing too and getting connected is getting easier. Technologies like low earth orbit satellite Starlink, for example, you've got OneWeb, which is which is offering up um, capability around you know satellite-based mobile cell capability. We've got our terrestrial telecommunications providers, which are slowly filling the gaps. But at the end of the day, they've got to focus where the population either is or is moving. Okay, so we get that. But look at the plethora now of startups. Zetify is just one example. You know, these, these startups are now offering farm-wide Wi-Fi that's anchored to a gateway that uses either the mobile network or, for example, on the global digital farm here, our farm-wide Wi-Fi is anchored to a single point which is going to Starlink. We've now got um, a lot of um, interesting work coming out around Halo technology. This is 10-kilometre-type Wi-Fi range. 
Professor Jackie McGlade used to work at the United Nations and was responsible for setting up some of the market access requirements Australian farmers are now facing. She's moved to Africa and created a company called Downforce Technology that can produce satellite reports for landholders that tracks their sustainability activity. Well, there are huge opportunities. So let me start at the paddock level because despite the fact that people think they know their land, actually what Downforce is able to provide is almost like an X-ray, an audit, not just of today but the last six years. So we give a kind of historical picture. So three years ago you did this. Look, this is what happened to carbon. This is what happened to biodiversity. This is what happened to your water. At the paddock scale, but then if you've got hundreds of thousands of hectares, it's the same analysis all the way up. Treasury wines in Australia are using robots and data collection systems in their vineyards already. Benjamin Harris explained what impact that's having. We're investing heavily in um, automation, including robotics, um, so robotic robotic operations in the vineyards, um, as well as our wineries, um, and also use of data. So um, we're very rich in data. We've got over 20 years of high-quality production data, so... Basically using data analytics and you know, AI machine learning to basically get some insights to help improve year on year what we're doing. How's it being used then, that information that you're gathering? How do you uh, put it to work? Um, well, climate is, is key for us. You know, you, you, we talk about good vintages, bad vintages um, all the time. And so our ability to, to react to that seasonal variability is key. So if we can learn, like if we can lose our production data and, and how vineyards are performed from a quality point of view and yield point of view and overlay that to the climatic conditions we're experiencing, but also going forward, um, that sort of longer term, two weeks, but even out to three months, and actually figure out how we should adjust our management. Sundown Pastoral Company has built its own solar plant with a battery and it's producing two-thirds of the power it needs to run its cotton gin. Now it's working on an ambitious second stage to produce hydrogen power and fertiliser. We were fortunate enough to um, win a government grant to build a uh, stage two, which is two more nine megawatt solar farms, and then an electrolyzer uh, to create hydrogen. And then from the hydrogen plant, we're then going to make our own fertiliser with anhydrous ammonia. So the idea there is to have, you know, either a hydrogen or anhydrous ammonia uh, generator to take the plant from, you know, the 66% to 100%, mm-hmm. uh, and create our own fuel and fertiliser on farm. Where you know, just for create... you, or you might be able to no, upscale. No, it's, it's a little bit more. We're in the final throes of. Um, the development of the project and it's up to about 15 tonnes a day of anhydrous ammonia. Um, the commercial plants without government funding are about 60 tonne a day but they're hundreds of millions. Mm. So this plant's like a lead a, a lead follower if you like to, so that government granted it to us um, to promote these infrastructure and technologies to en- enhance them across New South Wales and, and, and other states. To It's 100% green fuel, 100% green fertiliser and it's a circular economy where all your customers coming into the area that you're making it are bringing the trucks and the product in. So you've all your farmers are your clients, clients to sell the product back, to, back into. So we're taking 100% of the hydrogen ourselves next door, and we've got two or three other farmers that are take, going to take the offtake of the anhydrous ammonia. But for some companies, the way to meet market requirements for lower emissions is not always renewable energy. Josie Angus explains how the Angus Pastoral Company reduced their energy consumption by three quarters using diesel to heat water. 
So we're in a location where we're off-grid. There is no three-phase power where we live. Um, and so we explored uh, everything from pyrolysis to, you know, to solar. Um, I guess meat processing is a bit unique in that, you know, when the sun goes down, the energy, you know, that's when energy comes in. And if we look at where energy use lies, it's uh, 77% of our or benchmarked energy use across industry is actually in heating water um, and so um, what we were able to achieve um, by just waste heat recovery was to run at about 23% of the benchmark of energy use of industry um, but we do use a dirty old diesel generator to do that but if we were to build the the equivalents um, in solar panels we would be looking at you know increasing how much energy we actually had to produce in, you know, um, by 77%. Labor shortages are also pushing Australian companies to embrace robots and artificial intelligence. But choosing the right tech and getting access to high-speed internet are still the big challenges facing farmers. David Clawton ending that report with interviews by Emily Doak and Michael Condon. Well, yeah, how much has digital technology changed the way you farm and has it delivered what it's promised? As we heard, that was a big part of the discussion at the Digital Agri-Food Summit. And among the panellists at the summit was Dr Penny Schultz, who's a southeast farmer and livestock technical specialist with the South Australian Drought Hub. Penny, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Selena. You've just returned from the Digital Agri-Food Summit. Uh, paddock to Profit, I understand, was the theme, but just tell me a bit about um, was some of the, the main discussion coming out of the conference. Yeah, so it's really about the digital transformation of the agri-food sector um, from the farmer and the grower to um, the product. Um, there was a bit of an underlying sustainability theme, as it seems to be with everything mm. these days, but it really was about data sharing, partnering, collaboration, integrating data. Um, you know, we're on the cusp of, of things changing quite rapidly, both on-farm and the other links to the chain. It's, it's about doing the best we can um, with the best data that we can collect and, um, yeah, taking our industries to the next level. I saw you were on a number of panels, including one focusing on digital transformation. Just how significant has the transformation thus far, even in just the past few years, on farm been? Yeah, so it's gone two ways. So I think um, we can collect so much information now and do a lot with it. But there's some issues that were around a few years ago that are still um, there today. So we did talk about those those barriers. So, you know, um, integrating data, making sure it talks together, being able to collaborate with other pieces of technology so that they're compatible, and connectivity. You know, we, we still have that issue where we've got some great technology and some people just can't use it because they don't have the connectivity on their farm. Mind you, we're getting much better at overcoming those barriers and um, there has been a big change in many areas in that space and, and piece of technology just to get over that, that hump as well. I think we're um, moving into quite a new space where we need to not just bring data together, we need to build some really good recipes to make better decisions on farm. So it's great that we can pull bits of data in from, you know, the soil moisture, um, climate, animal growth and productivity rates or pasture or, or crop yields. We need to then put it into some sort of recipe that makes um, better decisions for us because data's great, 
the owner, if you can use it for something useful, um, and whether yeah. that's being more productive, more profitable, more sustainable, um, but also more resilient. And I think that's actually a really key thing. You know, we're moving into a bit of an El Nino space now, so decisions that we make right now, particularly with some pricing in the red meat industry that's pretty poor, every decision is really, really important right now. And as you say, data can be really helpful in helping make some of those decisions in an informed way. But if you've got a glut of it or a bit of information overload, or you're not really sure what to do with it, that can yeah. just create some headaches. Um, you've got farmers who've just, I've got all this information, but I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with it or how to you know, make sense of it all. Yeah, yeah. The last thing farmers need is another colourful map of their farm where it's red and it's green and it's brown. Um, to, you know, then try and work out what does that mean to me and what do I need to change on farm to, to fix this. So, yeah, it's about changing from just data and pictures to actual decisions on farm. Well, the sounds of it, especially coming out of this conference, is what the good news for farmers is there are a lot of people here in Australia working in this space? There is. And I, I was actually a little bit taken aback by how much work is going on across the country in this space and tech developers are getting really good at working together with each other as well as working with universities and um, government sectors and I suppose we have to move into that space. You can't just be on your own um, and and think you're doing a good job. You really need to collaborate and and that was another key thing that came out of the conference, that collaboration and and partnering because you can't can't do it alone anymore. The space is too big and... um, we're all trying to achieve something good for our industry. So um, it's not about being competitive, it's about working together. Tell me a bit about your role, uh, Penny, within the, the drought hub. I mean, this is really your field. Uh, you, you're working as a livestock technical specialist. So what does your role with the South Australian Drought Hub involve? Yeah, so the focus of the drought hub is building the resilience of farmers to drought and, and climate challenges. Um, but essentially, if farmers are able to build their skills and capacity to be more productive and sustainable um, and profitable, it helps you ride through those tougher times anyway. But we're working very closely with farming systems groups to ensure that the work that we do is in line with what farmers want and need, and that's really important. Um, and whether it's you know making better quality silage, whether it's using remote sensing technology um, to ensure you've got the pasture and ground cover that you need in the north of the state or, um, you know, whether it's about nutrition, we need to be working closely with farmers. Um, Unfortunately, or fortunately, while the the drought hubs around the country have been in place, we've actually had pretty good years. But, you know, we know that the next tough time is just around the corner or already upon us and and um, tough times don't have to be about drought either. They can be about disasters or poor pricing or, you know, many other challenges that, that farmers are facing. And with my role, obviously, I'm quite livestock-focused, but love the area of um, technology and, and adopting that on farm. But I'm very much focused on its value proposition and what that means for farmers because there's a lot of tech out there that, mm. that promises that it's going to be a game-changer and it's going to be easy to use and it's going to be beneficial um, and that's not always the case. So I'm there to, to support what um, the farmers are wanting. Dr. Schultz, great to catch up with you this afternoon. Thank you so much for making time for the Country Hour. Thanks, Elena. Dr. Penny Schultz is the Technical Livestock Specialist with the South Australian Drought Resilience Adoption and Innovation Hub.
You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. It's 20 minutes past 12. Well, strategic overturning of the topsoil could be the answer to the problem of non-wetting sands. While it seems at odds with current farming practices, deep tillage can bury the water-repellent layer of soil and replace it with soils better suited to fodder production. Dr Melissa Fraser is a principal consultant with Soil Function Consulting. She's been overseeing the trials across the Upper Southeast, and she told Karen Hunt there have been some standout results. We've got three trial sites established across the Upper Southeast, one at Western Flat, one at Field and one at Coomandouke. And at each of these sites, we're trialling different strategies to overcome those combinations of constraints. So we've got things like clay spreading and at, at Western Flat. Uh, we've trialled two different types of deep tillage at the field site. We've got a what's called a bednar, um, sort of a chisel plough versus a deep ripper, an agroplough deep ripper. And then over at the third site at Coomandouk, we've actually looked at a machine called a plaza plough, which inverts the surface soil layers versus also um, the bednar, the chisel plough with a couple of different configurations. So that's the principal one, looking at how we overcome the physical constraints in soils. And that involves both water repellents and high soil strength. We've also looked at a range of organic amendments too. So we've got different composted products at each of the sites um, and we're comparing those to traditional fertilisers to see uh, the impact of those applications on fodder growth but also on feed production as well. Is anything at this point standing out as an outstanding success? I think what we're confirming across these trials, not just these ones but also with GRDC investments across the region as well, is that Our sandy soils um, across the limestone coast are particularly prone to the development of water repellents and that we actually need to do something pretty destructive in most cases to actually really eliminate that constraint. So really inverting those surface soil layers and burying that water repellent surface deeper in the profile and that's for using machines like a plaza plough which is a one-way inversion plough or machines like a spader which is more of a burial of the topsoil down and, and brings the subsoil up those machines are really performing better in terms of treating water repellents than what the chisel plough or the deep rippers are doing. They're very good at decompacting the profile deeper in the soil, but aren't so great in this environment at treating that surface repellents. And what we know is that if you can't get the crop established and get uniform plant population to start with, it doesn't matter how much you open the profile up to access deep moisture later in the season, you've really um, cut your potential right at the start. That seems to be going against the grain of many agricultural processes at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Australian farmers have been um, really efficient um, at adopting no-till practices in modern agriculture, which has been great to reduce and eliminate wind erosion. And so we don't see a lot of soil move across our landscapes anymore, which is a really good thing. But what we now know is that with stubbles building up and, and organic materials building up at the surface, that that's where water repellents comes from. And so I'm certainly not advocating for increased cultivation. What we're really looking at here is a strategic one-off cultivation of soils or burial of surface repellent layers so that we can reset the system. And then it's about mindful management in that first year to make sure that we get good ground cover. And that's where things like broadcasting seed as well as um, sowing it so you get zero row spacing can help to eliminate those losses. Making sure that we understand what the new nutrient profile looks like so that we you know, if we bury the topsoil, which is usually the most nutrient-rich, if we bury that, what are we turning up and, and how we make sure we boost those, you know, phosphorus and potassium and organic matter levels as well, organic carbon levels, so we're still fixing nitrogen. And the role of organic amendments as well and the role that they play. So we know that things like the pig manure that we've applied at Boodaroo, we applied that at 10 tonnes per hectare. It was an aged pig manure embedding. 
And that kind of material applied after soil inversion can actually help to stabilise the surface as well and stop it blowing. And we also know that if we do these practices within the sowing window, so once the soils are all really wet and then we sow into a nice wet profile, that we can get a crop up you know, pretty quickly and stabilise those sites again. That's Dr Melissa Fraser there from Soil Function Consulting speaking to Karen Hunt. It's 24 minutes past 12, time to head off to the Weather Bureau. Vince Rollins is our forecaster today. Hello, Vince. Hello, Selena. Now I'm down in the southeast and we got a little bit of rain overnight. Was that spread mm. anywhere else, that love across the state? Yeah, look, we did get some, some oh, I suppose, reasonably good falls in some parts across the agricultural area, just extending into the south of the pastorals as well. And obviously, further north we went uh, not so much in it. But, uh, yeah, most of the, the higher fall, well, pretty much all of the higher falls were around the the uh, Mount Lofty ranges where we had uh, weekend totals getting up to around 25 millimetres uh, in a few locations and yeah, quite a few others in that sort of 10 to 15 millimetre range. But having a look elsewhere across the agricultural area around the southeast, uh, Mount Gambier ended up with 7.8 millimetres across the sort of Friday, Saturday, Sunday period. Canalpin in the upper southeast had 6.4. In the mid-north, we had Air Creek getting 8.4. Uh, York Peninsula had up to uh, four millimetres at Middleton, Kangaroo Island up to seven millimetres at, at Rocky River and a few places on the west coast around two millimetres. So it, it's a bit hit and miss, I think. But, uh, yeah, as you normally see in these westerly flows, the, the Mount Lofty <coughs> excuse me, ranges were the, uh, the highest totals for that uh, weekend period. But looks like most of the shower activity has cleared away now. We've got that high-pressure system sitting over the bite at the moment so just directing a southerly airstream across the state still looks like we've got just some light activity around Mount Gambier and and some of the Mount Lofty ranges at the moment but we are expecting that to clear out uh, in as the afternoon <coughs> progresses and uh, we should see quite a lot of this cloud sort of clearing away overnight as well so as we head into tomorrow we do have some quite light winds and, and clear skies as that high continues to move eastward so we we are expecting some frost over parts of the agricultural area and we do have a frost warning out for parts of the Murraylands and Upper South East for tomorrow as well. But as we continue through the week, that high continues to move eastwards, sort of reaches the, the Tasman Sea on Wednesday and we start to see the winds uh, turning more around to a north to northeasterly. Temperatures just gradually warming over the next few days and that's all ahead of a trough that is expected to move across uh, the western parts during Thursday and then uh, the, the remaining parts of the western south on Friday. Now we do see a, a bit of a low pressure system developing within this trough just near Kangaroo Island on Friday and then that continues to develop as it uh, tracks southeastwards over the weekend so that's a bit of a watch point for us at this stage to see how that low does develop and and it's um <clears throat> movement once it does pick up because it looks like there's a fair bit of wind around that low and uh, possibly some some further rainfall as well but as that trough does move across the state as we head into the latter part of the week and the weekend not a lot of shower activity associated with it initially but as we head into Saturday and Sunday as the winds go a little bit more southerly we do get some showers pushing up over the southern agricultural area on Saturday it does contract to the southeast on 
Sunday and then generally clears on Monday. But uh, yeah, still a little bit of uncertainty due to that low, um, how much rainfall we're going to see during that weekend period and exactly where it's going to fall. But uh, yeah, generally just gradually warming over the next few days as those winds go more northerly and then we get that uh, milder change coming through later in the week. But uh, yeah, a couple of cold mornings, particularly tomorrow morning, as I mentioned, with that uh, frost expected, Selena. All right. Thanks for that, Vince. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. No worries. Vince Rollins there from the Weather Bureau. Now looking at the western inland districts of New South Wales and the forecast for tomorrow for the upper western district, a sunny day with southerly winds 20 to 30 k's now, turning southeasterlies 15 to 25 k's now early in the morning, picking up to around 25 to 35 k's now in the morning. Overnight temperatures will fall between 8 and 12 degrees, daytime temperatures reaching into the mid to high 20s. For the lower western district tomorrow, also sunny conditions with southerly winds 15 to 20 k's now. They'll turn southeasterlies 15 to 25 uh, early in the morning. Overnight, those temperatures will get to around 6 degrees. Daytime, temperatures reaching into the low to mid-20s. You're with Selena Green on this Monday, bringing you the country out. It's coming up to half past 12 in this next half an hour. Well, yesterday was the International Day of Rural Women. Hopefully you celebrated it. We are going to celebrate a couple more fantastic rural women from our region. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Good afternoon. And you've got me until one o'clock on this Monday. Coming up, Australia has around 100,000 fly-in, fly-out workers, FIFO workers, as you probably better know them. The quality of accommodation in their camps can be a bit of a lottery, so you'll hear about a program that's trying to change that. And you'll also learn about the potential of medicinal gum trees that could one day be used to treat patients with diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and long COVID. I foresee a future where we have loads of different eucalypts and then lots of different other plants that we're growing for particular reasons because nature's an amazing pharmacy. It just grows some incredible compounds that can be useful in all all manner of ways and we just don't tap into it hardly at all. More on that to come shortly. And I must give a big congratulations today to Brittany Leibich from South Australia, who took out top spot at the National Dairy Cattle Young Judges Championship at Launceston over the weekend. If you were tuning into last week's program, you would have heard from a number of our South Australian finalists who headed over to represent us at the competition. And we've had a number represented in the placings. So congratulations to all, but a special congratulations to Brittany there for taking out top spot in the National Dairy Cattle Young Judges Championship. Now, before we get into any of those stories, Matt Coleman is here to give you a news update. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, medics in Gaza are warning that thousands could die as hospitals packed with wounded people are running low on petrol, which is desperately needed to run backup generators. The UN says there might be only 24 hours of fuel left to run them. Israel is bombarding Gaza with airstrikes and has blocked all supplies from getting in after Hamas militants launched a terrorist attack a week ago. 
The Country Fire Service estimates that the damage caused to an Adelaide Hills shopping centre by a fire is $25 million. Police say two 14-year-old boys have been arrested and will be charged with arson. Adelaide Hills Council Mayor Jan Clare Wisdom says the council is looking into setting up pop-up stores for businesses affected. And South Australian One Nation MP Sarah Games says she's moving for the state-based voice to parliament to be repealed because of how strongly people rejected the federal voice proposal. Polling in the referendum saw 64% of South Australians rejected. The state Labor government's voice legislation takes effect next March. More news at one o'clock. Thanks, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Now, are you a FIFO worker or maybe someone in your family is? What are the living conditions like in camp? A new initiative to establish a national benchmark within FIFO camps has been launched this past week. FIFO Insider is an offshoot of consulting firm Creating Communities. It's undertaking a FIFO village survey to help miners navigate the camp lottery. A director of engagement, Andrew Watts, says, while some sites do a really good job with clean, quality rooms, good shared spaces, healthy, fresh food choices and a variety of recreation facilities and programs, some others are far from acceptable. And he told Tara DeLangraft that the aim is to improve the health and well-being of the nation's 100,000 FIFO workers. We've been working in research on FIFO and transient workforces for nearly two decades, and we're continually building knowledge about that and about the importance of transient work. And the idea of FIFO Insider is to get even greater information um, about FIFO life workers, their life in the village and their families so that we can better support them, their health and wellbeing into the future. You mentioned this is a space you've been working in for around two decades, but this separate initiative, why was that needed? We really sort of thought that at the moment there's really no sort of baseline research, particularly around village life. So you have uh, camps and villages. And we, while we've done work for different companies and different organisations, there's no real standard or benchmark, and we're trying to get an understanding of what that might be so that we can actually provide that information to companies, to organisations who plan around FIFO villages in particular and how they might be able to better meet the needs and aspirations of their their workforce and people who are doing FIFO life. We know that communities continue to evolve, and so do FIFO communities. So we're really trying to get a, a greater in-depth understanding of that. So how are we going to do that? Well, we've got at the moment, we're going to, we've got a, a survey out there which is going to create a national benchmark in relation to, to FIFO villages. So that's out now. So people can find that actually on FIFO Insider via social media, be that, that Instagram or Facebook. We're also going to move into doing more research about FIFO families as the next step going forward. We've done other research in that area, but we find that, you know, the more that we can gather, the better we can actually respond to those needs and aspirations of the workers and reflect that in how we advocate to the companies and others who are providing the services to them, including village operators who operate the villages on behalf of the resource companies. You talk about collecting that data with the, the survey that's underway. Uh, what what then happens with that, that data? As you said, creating a benchmark. So if somebody, for instance, was looking to, to move into the industry or move uh, from one part of the industry to another, would it be available for them to make sort of informed decisions or would this be kept in-house for, for companies? Uh, so we're going to um, produce some reports that are publicly available. So a range of information about the trends that we're seeing. If we engage with a company, we'll be able to do that more specifically with them and drill down to their company and to their villages, um, for example. But we're also keen to share this information more broadly so that everyone in the community benefits from it. 
Um, and that will come out in a range of um, reports going forward. But the, the intent is really to build the collective knowledge about FIFO and transient workforce so that collectively we can all work together to improve the lives of those who, who are undertaking that work practice. Because we do hear a lot about the mental health of, of FIFO workers and, and the families that they are away from for six, eight, depending on, on your swing, uh, months at a time. Yep. Is is this sort of one way that you're hoping you, you can improve that, that mental health? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a key aspect of what we're focusing on. And we do know that um, obviously mental health is a key issue within the sector. We also know that those who have really planned out their FIFO life and actually have a, have a good schedule and what they do with their family and how they manage that transition between, you know, FIFO and coming home is really important. But the more we can build out that knowledge, and particularly one of the key aspects of what we're looking at is understanding the different demographics within within FIFO communities. So historically, FIFO villages, for example, used to be many years ago, single person's quarters with a sort of worker. Then they became a camp. Now they become a village with a sort of, um, the, the notion is about a guest experience. Our view is that if you're living in a FIFO village quite often for more than half your life, you're, you're not a guest, you're actually a resident. And we need to understand those different needs of those residents. And it might be if you're a new FIFO worker, it might be males and females, people from different cultures. They'll have different needs. They'll have different um, aspirations about what they want in their life. And our aim is to be able to understand the differences between those cohorts and be able to reflect that and communicate to those who are actually um, involved in the industry. The anti-social behaviour at some sites has been highlighted over the last two years throughout the media, throughout a number of government inquiries. Andrew, by doing a survey like this, do you hope it will encourage people to, to really do their research before they go go into a into a camp, into a camp lifestyle, I, I suppose, because safety is is just so so crucial within the industry. Yeah, I think safety is obviously pretty crucial. It will be one element um, in our in our research. But, but what we do know is that if you create a connected community within your villages, the opportunity to create a safer, more welcoming, more inclusive environment is there. So it's important to understand the needs of, of the different workers in relation to safety, but also some of the initiatives that you can put in place to build that sense of community and that sense of safety. When you know others in your village and you're not isolated, when you create opportunities for people to connect, it's far more likely they'll, they'll be safer. And also what we know is that if people are having a, a, a really good lifestyle, there's, there's not a huge gap between their home life and life actually on site and in the village, then they're more likely to stay and be retained as workers for, for those companies. And that saves companies a lot of money in turning workforces over. But it, it also means that they're safer workers on site because if they're sleeping well, they've got a good lifestyle in their village, they're feeling good about their life, they are far safer on, in, in the work site as well. That is the Creating Communities Director of Engagement, Andrew Watt. And uh, he was speaking to Tara Ledangraft there, who some of the data from those surveys will be out early next year. So you might hear some more about that. And thanks to our texter on the text line who uh, says, FIFO worker mental health help must be a priority. It's 21 minutes to one. Well, International Day of Rural Women was celebrated yesterday. Hopefully you took the chance to tell a woman working in rural Australia, one of our many rurally based industries, just how much you value her. My next guest is someone highly valued for her contribution to South Australia's wine industry, particularly when it comes to the link between wine and tourism. And that's something our state does very well. 
maybe as a wine consumer, you love to visit our state's wine regions and make a real experience of it. Helen Edwards is the co-founder of the Lane Vineyard Wine and Tourism Business. She's actively contributed to the economic development and tourism in the Adelaide Hills for the past 15 years. Those roles have included as chair of the Adelaide Hills Tourism Group, the South Australian Regional Visitor Strategy and the board of the South Australian Tourism Commission. And for her work, Helen was recently awarded a life membership of the South Australian Wine Industry Association. I understand she's the first female to receive that honour. Helen, welcome to the Country Hour. Hello, Selena. How are you? I'm very good and congratulations on being uh, recognised with an honorary life membership uh, of the association. What does it mean to you to be recognised in this way? Oh, gosh. Um, Look, I think recognition is the icing on the cake. Um, I'm always happy with the thank you, but, yeah, I was blown away. Let's be frank. Yes. It's always nice to be recognised. As you say, you always speak to people who say, don't ask for it, but it is always nice to to get a recognition. So your involvement with the wine industry, and and we'll talk a little bit more about the the link between wine and tourism, but the wine industry itself goes back to, is it fair to say the (laughs) 90s with the hills, or does it go back even further than that? Well, I think it was just over 30 years ago that I stood at an old farm gate on Ravenswood Lane, and that's just three kilometres out of Handorf in the Adelaide Hills. And I knew that the search was over. Um, We had found the place to plant our Adelaide Hills vineyard. And for me, it was just an instinctive decision, uh, a connection to this land that drew me in. And I know that's very common to talk about a connection to the land, but as a 10-year-old, I used to bribe my father to drive home to the Riverland through the Adelaide Hills uh, because I loved it and I wanted to live there one day. Mm. And so you've built this beautiful winery, but it is so much more than <laughs> just a winery because it really is an experience, isn't it? And and that's something that you've, you've worked hard to develop? Yes, yes. Look, uh, it started off as a vineyard venture, And I was working in the health sector at that stage. So I went off happily down the hill every day to my work in the health sector. However, when you link your fortunes with an entrepreneur 10 years later, well, well, let's build a winery and a restaurant. Uh, (laughs) um, I never went as far as accommodation. I thought that would be the last straw. Bridge too far. (laughs) Yeah, definitely a bridge too far. Yeah. So when people come to the lane, what are you hoping that they get from the experience, aside from tasting some delicious wines and hopefully taking them home and telling everyone how much they love them? What do you hope they they take away from it it being an experience there? I was very new to the wine industry, so I didn't really know anything about um, growing grapes or making wine. But what I had, um, I guess, a sixth sense about was that we were privileged to join the wine sector in a very exciting time for the Adelaide Hills. I think it was 98 that they were recognised as a specific region, a cool climate region. You know, there were some fantastic pioneers who were leading a cool climate reputation for the region. People like Brian Crozer and Stephen George and Henschke's and Hill Smith and Martin Shaw. So there were great, exciting stories to tell. And I knew that if I had longed to connect with the land, there must be other people like me. And I used to talk to people about 
um, our cellar door being the shop front for our brand, that once people came here and heard our story and they became part of our journey. And this is something now I think we just not so much take for granted but really expect yes. that this yes. the tourism and the wine go hand in hand. So that if people coming to a winery or a wine region, they expect to be able to perhaps have a meal at a winery or, or learn yes. a little bit about the process of, of the vines that are planted and the, the winemaking process. This is something now that really people want to be part of the whole experience? Oh, absolutely. And I, I often think back to those days when... We, um, you know, put gold um, medals all over wines that won at wine shows and had a cellar door open by appointment if you were lucky. And the Australian public have really taken to the experience of wine and they have a very good palate these days and they expect you to provide them with food and an experience and you know, to meet the people involved in the business often is an absolute um, requirement. And over the time that you've been involved in industry, how well have you seen South Australia develop that? I think South Australia is doing really well. I remember when I left the Adelaide Hills Wine Region as the president, they asked me to take a position on Adelaide Hills Marketing Committee, which was a committee appointed by the minister in the region. And I remember leaving the first meeting with a picture in my mind that the wine industry was like a huge suitcase. And on that suitcase was a luggage tag that read tourism. And, you know, it was quite a challenge to convince people that tourism had relevance to their wine business. Today, they know that it's absolutely part of their wine business and are constantly looking for new ways to respond to their customers or visitors, provide them with, you know, very unique experiences relevant to their region. Um, it's just been amazing, the work that they've done over the years. And is this something that you see potential for further growth here in South Australia to really build on? Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, people are always looking for something new. And we only have to, you know, some people take it to the nth degree, like the Cube um, at Darrenburg, but other people um, do smaller things in their business. You know, it could be like what, there's a wonderful e-bike experience in the Adelaide Hills that visits several wineries. And it is the most exhilarating experience when you don't have to pop up and down the hills to do that on, you know, on a lovely day. Yeah, as you say, there's uh, lots of opportunities there, whether they are big or small, but it is certainly yeah. something that, that consumers yeah. do uh, do want. Helen, it was great to have a chat with you uh, about your, we just, I think, barely scratched <laughs> the surface of your involvement in the industry over the years, but we didn't want to let uh, your life membership go past without uh, recognition. So it was lovely to chat with you today. Well, thank you very much. And I think it's a recognition as much of the Adelaide Hills wine region. So I'll happily share the wonderful glow that comes with these awards. Thank you, Selena. 
That's Helen Edwards there, co-founder of the Lane Vineyard, uh, and she was recently awarded a life membership of the South Australian Wine Industry Association. 13 minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. And you are with Selena Green on this Monday. Well, following the celebrations of Rural Women's Day on Sunday, a far west New South Wales resident is proving that living in rural and remote Australia doesn't limit your possibilities. Ainsley, Ainsley Fuster is a food blogger, a photographer and content creator, all while living and helping out on her family's property, Bullia Station. It's 270 kilometres north of Broken Hill. She's contributed recipes and photography for publications like Grazier Magazine and The Bush Journal. Lily McEwer spoke to Ainsley about how living in outback New South Wales is an excellent backdrop for her business. As much as the lifestyle out here is uh, busy, like we're busy most of the time, um, I'm quite lucky because Dad didn't know sort of take care of that side of things until they need me. So like, for example, at the moment we're shearing, so I'm not so much in the kitchen doing that sort of stuff um, as I am out in the paddock. But for the most time, I've got a fair bit of downtime to tinker around recipes and and make stuff and take photos and whatnot. So, yeah, being out here certainly helped me have that time to sort of hone in on this passion. What would you say to other women living and working on the land and potentially feeling limited by what they can do out here? Get online, find a community, find something you're passionate about, even if you're not finding support from it at home necessarily. The internet is a wonderful place full of wonderful people. Um, I certainly wouldn't be able to do what I do with photography without it. So, yeah, and I mean, even just finding, if, if you're new to an area, even if you're not, I mean, I grew up in this area and sometimes I feel like a stranger. <laughs> like people come and go all the time. So just getting out into your rural events, uh, getting engaged with the community, finding people like-minded, you'd be surprised just how many of us are out there with different passions and whatnot. Put yourself out there, find someone else that can share your passion and go for it. Finding a group of people, like-minded people and a sense of community, how important is it to recognise rural women on the land and foster a sense of community out in these more isolated areas? Uh, really important. Um, I mean, coming out of one of the worst droughts that I've ever seen, the community is really what I think kept us all insane, I want to say. Um, during the, the worst of the drought, that we had a few events where it be you know, paint and sit parties or women's like ladies' days where the girls would come to, we hosted one here actually on our property, um, just to, you know, chat, talk to each other, get anything off of our mind that we needed to and just come together as a whole because, you know, you're all straining, you're all stressed, you're under, you're all under a huge amount of pressure and when you're on your property you stay there and you're surrounded by the same people every single day sometimes you just need to take a step back get away from that and come together with everyone else who's in the same boat just so that you can just I don't know relax talk to each other realize that you're not alone that um, that certainly helps what is it about being on the land that, that you love I find myself it's like we're taking sheep out and whatnot at the end of the day you sort of think about what you've done for the day and it's it's a nice sense of a job well done and, you, say, for example, with shearing, you're taking sheep back at the end of the day and you see them and the job's done and they're going back out to their paddock and they look happy and healthy and it's, it's quite fulfilling. And I love that about living out here. Do you think that living on the land and then having this more creative passion and outlet sort of go hand in hand? 
getting into this when I first started food photography, I wanted to separate the two. I was very adamant that, you know, I wanted to do food photography and not share a lot of my life. It's only probably up until the last, I want to say, 12 months that I've realised that actually this is, we're obviously quite unique out here um, and people want to see that. That's content creator Angrasia Ainsley Fooster, and she was speaking there to Lily McEwer. It's just going on eight minutes to one here on the Country Hour. Well, a really fascinating story about the potential coming out of a crop of trees that have been planted in northeast Victoria, a new crop growing that could one day be used to treat patients with diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and even long COVID. Eight farmers have planted their paddocks with plantations of medicinal gum trees, producing a variety that has high concentrates of a compound that could be used in pharmaceuticals. Annie Brown has this report. And, yeah, being, being the kind of the, the lighter, lighter paddock in, on the farm, you know, predominantly kind of buckshot country, as you can see. Mark Valletta is a farmer who isn't afraid to try new things, and he's showing me one of his latest yeah, we crops. We usually put cattle in this paddock to, so they lose weight before calving, so, so to uh, you know, not take up uh, high-end horticulture land, it's, uh, yeah, it's a really, really exciting new venture. I'm a mixed farmer based just south of Benalla. I uh, run quite a diverse operation of uh, cherries, grapes for wine, lucerne, Angus cattle, merino sheep, wild forage mushrooms and uh, the uh, medicinal gum trees that we're, we're here to see today. Yeah, I, I, it, it definitely piques uh, people's interest and they said, oh, medicinal gums, what, what's involved? Is, is, it, is it for the extraction of the oil? And this is, this is actually a compound that's in quite high concentrations called pinocimbrum which has uh, been shown to have some really good uh, beneficial uh, medical application in Alzheimer's and dementia and anti-inflammatory and uh, antimicrobial uh, qualities. So how did you get into growing medicinal gum trees? Uh, funnily enough, a farmer mate of mine down the road, uh, JP, he, uh, he said, oh, there's a guy the farm next to me uh, growing some interesting gum trees. I reckon, I reckon it'd be right up your alley, Mark, and uh, jumped the fence and uh, went and caught up with Alistair. And uh, anyway, he was kind enough to show us the original planting and uh, I noticed there was a uh, little infestation of uh, some sort of caterpillar and I said, oh, you better kind of do something about this, uh, otherwise uh, you might not have a crop. And he said, oh, we're actually looking for um, other growers and someone with horticultural experience we'd really love to have involved. And uh, from then, I, when I found out that uh, the project was had really good backing from uh, Swinburne University, Melbourne University, and there was a lot of research in and around it, I, I was like, wow, this is something I'm, I'm kind of really interested in. And uh, a couple of years down the track, we're, we're standing here in the, in the trees and... You know, some of them are almost 10 foot high. So Mark has 2,000 gum trees in his plantation and is one of a handful of growers around the Benalla region. The trees are grown for Australian biotech company Gretels. The chief executive officer, Alistair Cummings, said they were originally looking for compounds that could be used to replace the use of antibiotics in livestock feed. When we started this journey um, in 1978, I was at a conference uh, at Massey University in New Zealand and as one of the key lecturers at that time stood up and made a comment in front of uh, major pharmaceutical companies and representatives from around the world is that the way that we're using antibiotics and livestock feed is going to lead to a potential problem as far as resistance was concerned. So that's when the journey started. So at that time I decided to 
meet some people from uh, University of Melbourne School of Botany, which is now Biosciences, and uh, got talking with them, and is that uh, we applied for and achieved to get an ARC linkage grant, and is that uh, we started looking at originally 188 different species of Australian flora. And out of that we found one particular species which uh, is in front of us at the present stage, which is a species which has got a high content of a compound called pinocimbrin. How long, in terms of a timeline, how long before we would see a product from these medicinal gum trees available to people to try? We're looking at having a functional food with this compound within the next um, 18 months. Easy. Dr Jason Goodger is a senior research fellow from the University of Melbourne. He researches chemicals found in plants and he's been looking into what this compound can do. So pinosambrin is a, a pharmaceutical flavonoid that has particular advantages for diseases of the central nervous system and cardiopulmonary disorders um, and we've done with Gretel some research on that showing that it's, um, it's really effective in treating lung fibrosis for instance something a lot of people with long COVID or those who've recovered from severe COVID have a lot of scarring on their lungs and compounds like pinosembrin can, can treat that scarring really effectively. Would it be safe for humans to consume? Yeah, also there have been toxicity studies done on it and showing that it's a non-toxic compound. So there's 800 different species of eucalypts and there hasn't been a lot of systematic work on exactly what's in them. And so things like pinosembrin are relatively recent discoveries. So it's been known from plants in China for, um, well, the Chinese have known about it for millennia. And interestingly enough, they use plants high in pinosembrin as tea for elderly people. We can grow so much of it so easily compared to extracting it from the Chinese plants. But more than that, there's a whole range of these flavonoids. So it's not just pinosembrin. And they all have different biological activities and potentially different uses. And then it's not just flavonoids. So I foresee a future where we have loads of different eucalypts and then lots of different other plants that we're growing for particular reasons because nature's an amazing pharmacy. It just grows some incredible compounds that can be useful in all, all manner of ways. There's Dr Jason Goodiger there from the University of Melbourne and he was speaking with Annie Brown. A couple of texts that have come through on the text line during the program. Uh, John texted in talking about FIFO workers and uh, trying to improve conditions at those camps for Australia's FIFO workers. John in his text says, so FIFO workers need to have better work conditions. Why don't they set up and join a union? That's what used to happen. Is John. Uh, and our chat with Helen Edwards, a new life member of the South Australian Wine Industry Association. Uh, this text says, ask Helen if she remembers going to work with one black shoe, one blue shoe on. I think she'd been up early chasing a cow, says our texter. She was a fabulous leader in the health industry. Thanks for your texts. It is two minutes to the news. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. On the way to the drop zone, you think of everything that can go wrong. What if the parachute doesn't work? Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. I remember jumping and free fall. There's so much information going into your mind. I remember landing going, what just happened? That was just insane. I never thought I could do that. Hear the latest conversations weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Now, don't forget, if you would uh, like to listen back to anything you might have missed on the Country Hour, uh, you can hop on our website, ABC. 
rural.net.au. If you go to rural, there's lots of great stories on there or just pop South Australian Country R into your search engine. Lots of fantastic stories to read on that ABC Rural website, uh, including about the work to try and get more women represented in agricultural leadership. Uh, And any audio that you've missed or anything you'd like to catch up on, don't forget the ABC Listen app. It's a free app. You can download it onto your smartphone or your tablet right now and you can go back and listen to the program and find lots of other fantastic ABC audio content. ABC Listen is the name of the app. I've been Selena Green. Thanks so much for your company today. It's just coming on to one o'clock and time for the news. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.